Section 1 of Volume 1C of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dustin Tuttle. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1C, Section 1, Chapter 24, Part 1. Henry the Seventh. The victory which the Earl of Richmond gained at Bosworth was entirely decisive, being attended as well with the total rout and dispersion of the royal army as with the death of the king himself. Joy for this great success suddenly prompted the soldiers in the field of battle to bestow on their victorious general the appellation of king, which he had not hitherto assumed, and the acclamations of long live Henry the Seventh by a natural and unpremeditated movement resounded from all quarters. To bestow some appearance of formality on this species of military election, Sir William Stanley brought a crown of ornament which Richard wore in battle and which had been found among the spoils, and he put it on the head of the victor. Henry himself remained not in suspense, but immediately, without hesitation, accepted of the magnificent present which was tendered him. He was come to the crisis of his fortune, and being obliged suddenly to determine himself amidst great difficulties which he must have frequently revolved in his mind, he chose that part which his ambition suggested to him, and to which he seemed to be invited by his present successes. There were many titles on which Henry could found his right to the crown, but no one of them free from great objections, if considered with respect either to justice or to policy. During some years Henry had been regarded as heir to the House of Lancaster by the party attached to that family, but the title of the House of Lancaster itself was generally thought to be very ill-founded. Henry the Fourth, who had first raised it to royal dignity, had never clearly defined the foundation of his claim, and while he plainly invaded the order of succession, he had not acknowledged the election of the people. The Parliament, it is true, had often recognized the title of the Lancastrian princes, but these votes had little authority, being considered as instances of complacence towards a family in possession of present power, and they had accordingly been often reversed during the late prevalence of the House of York. Prudent men also, who had been willing for the sake of peace to submit to any established authority, desired not to see the claims of that family revived claims which must produce many convulsions at present, and which disjointed for the future the whole system of hereditary right. Besides allowing the title of the House of Lancaster to be legal, Henry himself was not the true heir of that family, and nothing but the obstinacy natural to faction, which never without reluctance will submit to an antagonist, could have engaged the Lancastrians to adopt the Earl of Richmond as their head. His mother, indeed, Margaret, Countess of Richmond, was sole daughter and heir of the Duke of Somerset, sprung from John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. But the descent of the Somerset line was itself illegitimate, and even adulterous. And though the Duke of Lancaster had obtained the legitimation of his natural children by a patent from Richard II, confirmed in Parliament, it might justly be doubted whether this deed could bestow any title to the crown, since in the patent itself, 
all the privileges conferred by it are fully enumerated, and the succession to the kingdom is expressly excluded. In all settlements of the crown made during the reigns of the Lancastrian princes, the line of Somerset had been entirely overlooked, and it was not till the failure of the legitimate branch that men had paid any attention to their claim. And to add to the general dissatisfaction against Henry's title, his mother, from whom he derived all his right, was still alive, and evidently preceding him in the order of succession. His title of the House of York, both from the plain reason of the case, and from the late popular government of Edward the Fourth, had universally obtained the preference in the sentiments of the people, and Henry might engraft his claim on the rights of that family by his intended marriage with the Princess Elizabeth, the heir of it a marriage which he had solemnly promised to celebrate, and to the expectation of which he had chiefly owed all his past successes. But many reasons dissuaded Henry from adopting this expedient. Were he to receive the crown only in right of his consort, his power, he knew, would be very limited, and he must expect rather to enjoy the bare title of king by a sort of courtesy than possess the real authority which belongs to it. Should the princess die before him without issue, he must descend from the throne and give place to the next in succession. And even if his bed should be blessed with offspring, it seemed dangerous to expect that filial piety in his children would prevail over the ambition of obtaining present possession of regal power. An act of Parliament, indeed, might easily be procured to settle the crown on him during life, but Henry knew how much superior the claim of succession by blood was to the authority of an assembly which had always been overborne by violence in the shock of contending titles, and which had ever been more governed by the conjunctures of the times than by any consideration derived from reason or public interest. There was yet a third foundation on which Henry might rest his claim, the right of conquest, by his victory over Richard, the present possessor of the crown. But besides that Richard himself was deemed no better than a usurper, the army which fought against him consisted chiefly of Englishmen, and a right of conquest over England could never be established by such a victory. Nothing also would give greater umbrage to the nation than a claim of this nature, which might be construed as an abolition of all their rights and privileges, and the establishment of absolute authority in the sovereign. William himself, the Norman, though at the head of a powerful and victorious army of foreigners, had at first declined the invidious title of conqueror and it was not till the full establishment of his authority that he had ventured to advance so violent and destructive a pretension. But Henry was sensible that there remained another foundation of power, somewhat resembling the right of conquest, namely, present possession, and that this title, guarded by vigor and abilities, would be sufficient to secure perpetual possession of the throne. He had before him the example of Henry the Fourth, who, supported by no better pretension, had subdued many insurrections, and had been able to transmit the crown peaceably to his posterity. He could perceive that this claim, which had been perpetuated through three generations of the family of Lancaster, might still have subsisted, notwithstanding the preferable title of the House of York, had not the scepter devolved into the hands of Henry the Sixth, which were too feeble to sustain it. Instructed by this recent experience, Henry was determined to put himself in possession of regal authority, and to show all opponents that nothing but force of arms and a successful war should be able to expel him. His claim as heir to the House of Lancaster he was resolved to advance, and never allow it to be discussed, and he hoped that this right, 
favored by the partisans of that family and seconded by present power would secure him a perpetual and an independent authority these views of henry are not exposed to much blame because founded on good policy and even on a species of necessity but there entered into all his measures and counsels another motive which admits not of the same apology the violent contentions which during so long a period had been maintained between the rival families and the many sanguinary revenges which they had alternately taken on each other had inflamed the opposite factions to a high pitch of animosity henry himself who had seen most of his near friends and relations perish in battle or by the executioner and who had been exposed in his own person to many hardships and dangers had imbibed a violent antipathy to the york party which no time or experience were ever able to efface instead of embracing the present happy opportunity of abolishing these fatal distinctions of uniting his title with that of his consort and of bestowing favor indiscriminately on the friends of both families he carried to the throne all the partialities which belong to the head of a faction and even the passions which are carefully guarded against by every true politician in that situation to exalt the lancastrian party to depress the adherents of the house of york were still the favorite objects of his pursuit and through the whole course of his reign he never forgot these early prepossessions incapable from his natural temper of a more enlarged and more benevolent system of policy he exposed himself to many present inconveniences by too anxiously guarding against that future possible event which might disjoin his title from that of the princess whom he espoused and while he treated the Yorkists as enemies, he soon rendered them such, and taught them to discuss that right to the crown, which he so carefully kept separate, and to perceive its weakness and invalidity. To these passions of Henry, as well as to his suspicious politics, we are to ascribe the measures which he embraced two days after the Battle of Bosworth. Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick, son of the Duke of Clarence, was detained in a kind of confinement at Sheriff Hutton in Yorkshire by the jealousy of his uncle Richard, whose title to the throne was inferior to that of the young prince. Warwick had now reason to expect better treatment, as he was no obstacle to the succession either of Henry or Elizabeth, and from a youth of such tender years no danger could reasonably be apprehended. But Sir Robert Willoughby was dispatched by Henry with orders to take him from Sheriff Hutton to convey him to the tower, and to detain him in close custody. The same messenger carried directions, that the Princess Elizabeth, who had been confined to the same place, should be conducted to London, in order to meet Henry, and there celebrate her nuptials. Henry himself set out for the capital, and advanced by slow journeys. Not to arouse the jealousy of the people, he took care to avoid all appearance of military triumph, and so to restrain the insolence of victory, that everything about him bore the appearance of an established monarch, making a peaceable progress through his dominions, rather than of a prince who had opened his way to the throne by force of arms. The acclamations of the people were everywhere loud and no less sincere and hearty. Besides that, a young and victorious prince on his accession was naturally the object of popularity. The nation promised themselves great felicity from the new scene which opened before them. During the course of near a whole century, the kingdom had been laid waste by domestic wars and convulsions, and if at any time the noise of arms had ceased, 
the sound of faction and discontent still threatened new disorders. Henry, by his marriage with Elizabeth, seemed to ensure a union of the contending titles of the two families, and having prevailed over a hated tyrant, who had anew disjointed the succession even of the House of York, and had filled his own family with blood and murder, he was everywhere attended with the unfeigned favor of the people. Numerous and splendid troops of gentry and nobility accompanied his progress. The mayor and companies of London received him as he approached the city. The crowds of people and citizens were zealous in their expressions of satisfaction. But Henry, amidst this general effusion of joy, discovered still the stateliness and reserve of his temper, which made him scorn to court popularity. He entered London in a closed chariot, and would not gratify the people with the sight of their new sovereign. But the king did not so much neglect the favor of the people as to delay giving them assurances of his marriage with the princess Elizabeth, which he knew to be so passionately desired by the nation. On his leaving Brittany, he had artfully dropped some hints that, if he should succeed in his enterprise and obtain the crown of England, he would espouse Anne, the heir of that duchy. And the report of this engagement had already reached England, and had begotten anxiety in the people, and even in Elizabeth herself. Henry took care to dissipate these apprehensions, by solemnly renewing, before the council and principal nobility, the promise which he had already given to celebrate his nuptials with the English princess. But though bound by honor, as well as by interest, to complete this alliance, he was resolved to postpone it till the ceremony of his own coronation should be finished until his title should be recognized by Parliament. Still anxious to support his personal and hereditary right to the throne, he dreaded lest a preceding marriage with the princess should imply a participation of sovereignty in her, and raise doubts of his own title by the House of Lancaster. There raged at that time in London, and other parts of the kingdom, a species of malady unknown to any other nation or age, the sweating sickness, which occasioned the sudden death of great multitudes though it seemed not to be propagated by any contagious infection, but aroused from the general disposition of the air and of the human body. In less than twenty-four hours the patient commonly died or recovered, but when the pestilence had exerted its fury for a few weeks, it was observed either from alterations in the air or from a more proper regimen which had been discovered to be considerably abated. Preparations were then made for the ceremony of Henry's coronation. In order to heighten the splendor of that spectacle, he bestowed the rank of knight banneret on twelve persons, and he conferred peerages on three. Jasper, Earl of Pembroke, his uncle, was created Duke of Bedford. Thomas Lord Stanley, his father-in-law, Earl of Derby, and Edward Courtney, Earl of Devonshire. At the coronation, likewise, there appeared a new institution, which the king had established for security as well as pomp, a band of fifty archers, who were termed yeomen of the guard. But lest the people should take umbrage at this unusual symptom of jealousy in the prince, as if it implied a personal diffidence of his subjects, he declared the institution to be perpetual. The ceremony of coronation was performed by Cardinal Boucher, Archbishop of Canterbury. The Parliament being assembled at Westminster, the majority immediately appeared to be devoted partisans of Henry, all persons of another disposition either declining to stand in those dangerous times, or being obliged to dissemble their principles and inclinations. 
the Lancastrian party had everywhere been successful in the elections, and even many had been returned who, during the prevalence of the House of York, had been exposed to the rigor of law, and had been condemned by sentence of attainder and outlawry. Their right to take seats in the House being questioned, the case was referred to all the judges, who assembled in the Exchequer Chamber, in order to deliberate on so delicate a subject. The opinion delivered was prudent, and contained a just temperament between law and expediency. The judges determined that the members attained should forbear taking their seat till an act were passed for the reversal of their attainder. There was no difficulty in obtaining this act, and in it were comprehended a hundred and seven persons of the king's party. But a scruple was started of a nature still more important. The king himself had been attainted, and his right of succession to the crown might thence be exposed to some doubt. The judges extricated themselves from this dangerous question by asserting it as a maxim, that the crown takes away all defects and stops in blood, and that from the time the king assumed royal authority, the fountain was cleared, and all attainders and corruptions of blood discharged. Besides that the case, from its urgent necessity, admitted of no deliberation, the judges probably thought that no sentence of a court of judicature had authority sufficient to bar the right of succession, that the heir of the crown was commonly exposed to such jealousy as might often occasion stretches of law and justice against him, and that a prince might even be engaged in unjustifiable measures during his predecessor's reign without meriting on that account to be excluded from the throne, which was his birthright. With a parliament so obsequious, the king could not fail of obtaining whatever act of settlement he was pleased to require. He seems only to have entertained some doubt within himself on what claim he should found his pretensions. In his speech to the parliament, he mentioned his just title by hereditary right, but lest that title should not be esteemed sufficient, he subjoined his claim by the judgment of God, who had given him victory over his enemies. And again, lest this pretension should be interpreted as assuming a right of conquest, he ensured to his subjects the full enjoyment of their former properties and possessions. The entail of the crown was drawn according to the sense of the king, and probably in words dictated by him. He made no mention in it of the princess Elizabeth, nor of any branch of her family. But in other respects the act was compiled with sufficient reserve and moderation. He did not insist that it should contain a declaration or recognition of his preceding right, as, on the other hand, he avoided the appearance of a new law or ordinance. He chose a middle course which, as is generally unavoidable in such cases, was not entirely free from uncertainty and obscurity. It was voted that the inheritance of the crown should rest, remain, and abide in the king but whether as rightful heir, or only as present possessor, was not determined. In like manner, Henry was contented that the succession should be secured to the heirs of his body, but he pretended not, in case of their failure, to exclude the House of York, or to give the preference to that of Lancaster. He left that great point ambiguous for the present, and trusted that, if it should ever become requisite to determine it, future incidents would open the way for the decision. But even after all these precautions, the king was so little satisfied with his own title that in the following year he applied to papal authority for a confirmation of it. And as the court of Rome gladly laid hold of all opportunities 
which the imprudence weakness or necessities of princes afforded it to extend its influence innocent the eighth the reigning pope readily granted a bull in whatever terms the king was pleased to desire all henry's titles by succession marriage parliamentary choice even conquest are there enumerated and to the whole the sanction of religion is added excommunication is denounced against every one who should either disturb him in the present possession or the heirs of his body in the future succession of the crown and from this penalty no criminal except in the article of death could be absolved but by the pope himself or his special commissioners it is difficult to imagine that the security derived from this bull could be a compensation for the defect which it betrayed in henry's title and for the danger of thus inviting the pope to interpose in these concerns it was natural and even laudable in henry to reverse the attainders which had passed against the partisans of the house of lancaster but the revenges which he exercised against the adherents of the york family to which he was soon to be allied cannot be considered in the same light yet the parliament at his instigation passed an act of attainder against the late king himself against the duke of norfolk the earl of surrey viscount lovell the lords zouche and ferrars of chartley sir walter and sir james harrington sir william berkeley sir humphrey statford catesby and about twenty other gentlemen who had fought on richard's side in the battle of bosworth how men could be guilty of treason by supporting the king in possession against the earl of richmond who assumed not the title of king it is not easy to conceive and nothing but a servile complaisance in the parliament could have engaged them to make this stretch of justice nor was it a small mortification to the people in general to find that the king prompted either by avarice or resentment could in the very beginning of his reign so far violate the cordial union which had previously been concerted between the parties and to the expectation of which he had plainly owed his succession to the throne the king having gained so many points of consequence from the parliament thought it not expedient to demand any supply from them which the profound peace enjoyed by the nation and the late forfeiture of richard's adherents seemed to render somewhat superfluous the parliament however conferred on him during life the duty of tonnage and poundage which had been enjoyed in the same manner by some of his immediate predecessors and they added before they broke up other money bills of no great moment the king on his part made returns of grace and favor to his people he published his royal proclamation offering pardon to all such as had taken arms or formed any attempts against him provided they submitted themselves to mercy by a certain day and took the usual oath of fealty and allegiance upon this proclamation many came out of their sanctuaries and the minds of men were everywhere much quieted henry chose to take wholly to himself the merit of an act of grace so agreeable to the nation rather than communicate it with the parliament as was his first intention by passing a bill to that purpose the earl of surrey however though he had submitted and delivered himself into the king's hands was sent prisoner to the tower End of section one, chapter twenty four, part one. Recording by Dustin Tuttle.